Welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast. Today we're exploring one of the most ubiquitous foods on Earth. Over 100 billion servings of this stuff were served last year alone, and those numbers rise every year. This pantry staple knows no borders. It is popular in nearly every country, and it's often seen as a mascot for our increasingly global and our increasingly industrial modern food culture. But as a staple, it's only as good as what you put into it, and I'm talking, of course, about instant noodles. There are many delicious varieties of instant noodles, each tailored to the taste of their home region, and all appreciated by many far and wide. But despite their relatively recent history, they have their roots in one of the oldest methods of preservation used by humans. We're going to explore this fascinating history as well as the state of things today and some of the most popular varieties. So without further ado, grab your favorite brand of noodles, some hot water, and your favorite toppings, and let's get into it. Preservation is one of the foundational elements of society and definitely one of humanity's greatest advantages. Think about everything you have in your kitchen right now. There probably isn't much in there that would last more than a day or two without refrigeration, canning, controlled fermentation, smoking, curing, or any other of the wonderful and creative ways that we humans have found to keep our food tasty, safe, and nutritious for long periods of time. Now, food goes bad for a wide variety of reasons, but the most common way for food to spoil is by way of the bacteria, yeasts, molds, and enzymes that are naturally present in your food, in the air, and really everywhere. Taking bacteria as an example, they can harm us in two ways. They can produce toxins, or they can reproduce very quickly and overwhelm our immune systems. Many of the better-known bacteria which can harm us through our food do so by producing toxins. Two good examples of this are E. coli and botulism. In the case of botulism, the bacteria Clostridium botulinum produce botulinum toxin under certain conditions. Botulinum toxins are the most poisonous proteins that we know of and can cause paralysis of the entire body and ultimately death. This is admittedly terrifying, but the important thing to realize is that humanity has gained an unprecedented understanding of the natural world over time, and we understand these bacteria pretty well. In fact, we use botulinum in what sounds like a pretty terrifying way. We use its paralyzing effect to selectively paralyze specific muscles. We've all heard of people getting Botox for whatever reasons, and Botox and a few other drugs are basically just tamed botulism. I know someone with a twitch in their eye, and they get injected with Botox a few times a year to have the muscles that cause that twitch temporarily paralyzed. That's how well we've come to understand this stuff, but make no mistake, we don't know everything and we learn more every day. When it comes to our food, these bacteria are naturally present in soil, so it's really hard to avoid them. The key is to kill them off before they can produce enough toxins to hurt us, because those toxins, once they're produced, can't really be dealt with in any way. The way we control this is by creating a hostile environment to those specific bacteria. We can do this through heat. Everything dies at a relatively low temperature, so this is very effective, and this process, which is called pasteurization, has saved countless lives. But, and we'll get into this with more detail in future episodes about fermented foods, we have a symbiotic relationship with bacteria. We need a good balance of many different types of bacteria to keep ourselves in optimum health. Heating can also break down nutrients that we don't want to go away. 
But we understand these bacteria so well that we know that if we create a specific environment, we can stop the propagation of botulinum while at the same time encouraging the growth of good bacteria like lactobacillus. Botulinum like an environment with low oxygen, high moisture, low salt, and low acid. We've done a good job of using this knowledge to our advantage and botulism cases are at a low of around 110 per year in the United States. And that's despite many of us eating foods which might be prone to botulism almost every day. And although they didn't know that these tiny bacteria were responsible, people in all corners of the globe made use of fermentation and other methods to control them and to make their foods last longer and taste better for thousands of years. Now that was a little bit of a tangent into fermentation and there's so much more to it than that and we'll definitely go down that rabbit hole in, the fu in some future episodes. But for now, it's a great example to demonstrate how our goal in preservation is primarily to control the thousands of bacteria, yeasts, molds, and enzymes of which Clostridium botulinum is only one. Also, that we're pretty good at it and we've been doing it for a while. The most popular method of preservation today is refrigeration, which controls the actions of these natural processes by reducing temperatures in order to slow them down to a near standstill. It's hard to imagine a world without refrigeration and it's kind of made us forget about a lot of the older methods. But many of them are seeing a renewed interest today, not necessarily out of necessity, but because of the flavors they produce. And while refrigeration is among the newest ways of preserving food, the subject of this episode is concerned with the oldest, and it goes back to 12,000 BCE. All life on Earth needs water, and although nature does sometimes find a way of getting by with very little, if you remove as much water as possible from food, it makes it very difficult for things to grow on it. It also lasts way longer, and it becomes lighter, more compact, and it naturally has more calories and fiber by volume. These are all hallmarks of instant noodles. They're compact, light, easy to carry, and although they're not the best to support individuals long term, they're pretty nutrient dense. This method was great before we settled, especially to nomadic tribes and armies going into battle because many things lose half or more of their weight and volume when dehydrated. But we're lucky, maybe, enough to live in a developed civilization and that's what instant noodles were developed for. Although I and many others grew up sometimes snacking on the dry instant noodle cakes like a cracker, this is a product that's meant to be rehydrated and served not by itself but with, at very least, that packet of also dehydrated vegetables and seasonings. We're gonna get into it later, but that is the real genius of instant noodles. On March 5, 1910, in what is known today as Chaiyi, Taiwan, but what was known at the time as Kagi under Japanese rule, Gopei Hok was born into a wealthy family. He was raised by his grandparents in Tainan, where they owned a textile business. At 22, he started his own textile business and moved to Japan to study economics at Rutsumiken University in Kyoto. He started a merchandising firm with money he inherited from his family, but in 1948 he was sent to prison for tax evasion and the company went bankrupt. After his sentence, he started a new company which produced salt and that company would become known as Nissan, which is a name that many of us probably know today. 
After World War II, Taiwan was given to the Republic of China and Go Pei Hock stayed in Japan but chose to keep his Taiwanese citizenship rather than give up his family's property in Taiwan to become Japanese. In the aftermath of the war, Japan's landscape had been severely scarred. Resources normally used in food production had been diverted to the war effort, and Korea as well as Taiwan who produced much of Japan's rice had been liberated and Japanese people who lived in these colonies returned in high numbers. This and many other factors led to widespread famine and rationing throughout Japan. After Japan's surrender, the Allies led by the United States occupied Japan and set two goals for its reconstruction. For one, they wanted to take away Japan's potential to start war. And, fearing that war impoverished Japan was a perfect place for communism to spread, they wanted to make a capitalist democracy that leaned towards the United Nations. This occupation saw the United States dictating the course of much of Japanese policy from 1945 to 1952. We saw one effect of this in the final part of our three-part series on soy sauce, when the U.S. appointed Mrs. Appleton to oversee that industry. She ordered the use of Western-developed chemical hydrolysis to cut fermentation time from months to days in the name of efficiency. And as we saw, that resulted in one company developing a hybrid method so that Japanese shoyu could be made more efficiently using some level of chemical hydrolysis but not entirely. Eventually though, most producers returned to the time-honored method. By 1945, Japan had seen its worst rice harvest in over four decades, and as mentioned, they had also lost their rice-producing colonies. Because of this, the Americans imported wheat to be made into bread, and bread consumption tripled over three years. What would become ramen noodles were introduced to Japan by way of China in the 17th century or maybe later depending on the account. Black market food stalls were an important source of meals in Japan during the war. But with Allied food supplies being constantly behind schedule and sometimes even split between Korea, where the United States was also fighting communism, they became particularly important. And by the end of 1945, there were said to be 45,000 or more of these stalls in Tokyo alone. Many of these stalls used surplus wheat from the Americans to produce ramen. In his autobiography, our hero wrote of his experience as he walked through the streets of Osaka in this excerpt. I happened to pass this area and saw a line of 20 or 30 meters in length in front of a dimly lit stall from which clouds of steam were steadily rising. People dressed in shabby clothes shivered in the cold waiting for their turn. The person who was with me said they were lined up for a bowl of ramen. I was surprised to realize then that people were willing to wait patiently for a bowl of ramen. This man, Go Pei-hok, would, upon marrying his wife later on, take the name Momofuku Ando. This name is firmly cemented in history today, including in the series of restaurants started by David Chang, because this experience in Osaka would lead him to invent one of the most world-changing foods in history. Very reasonably, after this experience at the stalls, Ando wondered why the Americans were ordering bread to be made in the first place when noodles were already a staple of Japanese diets. The answer that he was given was that noodle makers were too small and unreliable to handle the scale of production that was necessary. So working on the idea that he cemented in the quote, peace will come to the world when people have enough to eat, Ando set about solving the production problems. In a small workshop behind his house which has been recreated at the Cup Noodles Museum in Osaka, he used secondhand equipment to experiment with his ideas. 
One experiment had him sprinkling soup on the noodles with a watering can and then letting them dry. But his breakthrough discovery was that by making noodles, moistening them, and then quickly frying them in oil, the moisture would be forced out, creating a noodle which readily accepted moisture in reheating. In addition to being easy and quick to prepare, these noodles were light, compact, and had a shelf life that even exceeded that of frozen noodles, but without the need for expensive refrigeration. When we dehydrate foods, we take a significant amount of weight out, and as mentioned earlier, that can be more than half of the total weight of the food. This massively reduced costs, especially on a large scale. These savings can eventually be passed on to the consumers, thereby incentivizing them to buy in great quantity. And nearly everyone has access to hot water, so we're really not asking much of the consumer. Ando wanted his product to feed the masses, so he declared that Hindus may not eat beef, and Muslims may not eat pork, but there is not a single culture, religion, or country that forbids the eating of chicken. And thus, the first flavor, chicken ramen, was born and remains one of the classics to this day all over the world. That said, instant noodles were a bit of a luxury when they were first released in 1958, since ramen from a yatai was considerably cheaper, and fresh noodles at a grocery store were even less. But in 1959, they were promoted by the Mitsubishi Corporation. We here in the States are likely familiar with the Mitsubishi Motors Company, but that is just one division among many in what is Japan's largest trading company, which has roots going back to the Tokugawa era. That is to say that a promotion for Mitsubishi was a big deal and sales skyrocketed while prices dropped, making them even more accessible to more people. In 1970, Ando's company Nissan Foods set up a subsidiary to sell their product in the United States, and it was there that they observed Americans breaking the noodles up and rehydrating them in cups. This is said to be the inspiration for what many see as Momofuku Ando's greatest invention. We see cup noodles everywhere today, often in plastic or styrofoam cups. The original packaged cakes still sell en masse, but the cup noodles made it so all you need to enjoy noodles is hot water and maybe some utensils. This moved Ando closer to his goal of feeding the world's hungry masses with his invention. This was the hope for his product until he died at the age of 96 in 2007. He was extremely proud of his product and its reach which even extended beyond Earth when in 2005 Japanese astronaut Soichi Noguchi brought Nissan Instant Noodles aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. This was a very complicated project involving a lot of research and Ando himself was involved in a lot of it. And this amazing feat was the inspiration for his funeral which saw Osaka's Kyocera Baseball Stadium adorned with stars, LED lights, and galaxies rotating on video displays. Over 6,000 people attended, including the Prime Minister of Japan, who praised Ando's contributions. In addition to his final product developed for space travel, this was a tribute to Halley's Comet, the famous comet which passes close to Earth every 75 to 76 years. It has been a source of omens around the world since at least 240 BCE, and the implication here was that Ando and his noodles were a gift from above. There's nothing that I love more about humanity or that gives me more hope for the future than people like Momofuku Ando. He's not just the guy who had a good idea and built it into a billion dollar empire. His primary motivator wasn't profit. Obviously profit has to be a motivator if you want to grow a company to that size, but Momofuku Ando really wanted to help feed the hungry and was genuinely motivated by a desire to affect meaningful change around the world. 
At the end of his funeral, guests were given a variety of instant noodles, including some in their new eco-friendly packaging, along with a book of his most famous quotes, which included the one I mentioned earlier, peace will come to the world when all its people have enough to eat. We all lost a great man in 2007, but he did a lot of good in his time, and we can learn a lot from his story. And his mission continues with his son Koki Ando, who now runs Nissan Foods. But what sets these noodles apart? What makes good noodles, and are they really a good solution to world hunger? We'll explore those questions and some of the popular varieties of instant noodles around the world right after this. Alright, so the process for making instant noodles today goes something like this with some variability. The ingredients for the noodles are mixed and kneaded in a mixing machine for about 15 to 20 minutes. The dough then passes through rollers to get flattened into a sheet. It continues through these rollers until a thickness of about 1 millimeter is achieved. During this time, gluten is developed which gives the noodles some elasticity. The sheets go through a slitter which cuts the noodles and gently presses them into a characteristic wavy shape which ensures that they don't stick together. Once they're shaped, they go for a quick steam, around 1-5 to five minutes, and this pre-gelatinizes the starch so they take the seasoning and frying better and are more open to rehydrating later on. After they're steamed, they're fed into a machine which cuts the noodles to around 40-70 to 70 centimeters and portions them into the desired serving size. The molded noodles are then dried, and this can be done either by frying them for 1-2 to two minutes at about 150 degrees Celsius, or by air drying them with hot air for more than 30 minutes. And now that they're finally ready, they're cooled, weighed, checked for safety, packaged, and sent off. This is the process for making instant noodles on an industrial scale. There is some variation between brands, but for the most part they adhere to this formula. The real dividing factor is air drying versus frying. Frying is the most popular way of removing moisture, with 80% of manufacturers using it. This is because frying reduces moisture content to as low as 2% in a couple of minutes, while air drying only reduces moisture to as low as 8% over much longer. It's also said that air drying can be uneven and doesn't produce the same flavor. There are some benefits to air drying, however, most notably a lower oil content in the final product. There are many other elements, both big and small, that can affect noodle texture, taste, quality, and other factors. Now, I'm not going to bore you all with the different grades of flour which contribute to optimum pre-gelatinization and ultimately to the porous texture that's necessary for quick rehydration, but I will quickly mention one ingredient which is pretty important in instant noodles as well as regular ramen, and that is kansui. Kansui is an alkaline salt or solution usually made with sodium and potassium carbonates. This stuff can be found in many stores from brands like Kunchan under the name Kansui, Alkaline Salt, or Lye Water, and it's one of the key factors in separating something like a ramen or an instant noodle from something like Italian pasta. An article from Sirius Eats mentions that you can turn baking soda, which is sodium bicarbonate, into sodium carbonate by baking it at a low temperature. I've linked that article in the show notes if you're curious about it. But the addition of alkalinity is important because it interacts with the proteins in the noodle dough in a way that increases water absorption, gives the noodles a firm springy texture, and slows starch gelatinization. 
It also lends that characteristic yellow color that we all know so well. And I wasn't going to explain why that is, but I like how sci-fi it sounds. So the yellow coloring comes as a result of endogenous flavonoids undergoing a chromophoric shift. If you want to learn what that means and more about the noodle making process in general, I've linked an amazing paper by Neelam Gulia, Vandana Dhaka, and B.S. Katakan from the Guru Jambeshwar University Department of Food Technology in Hisar, India. In this paper, they break down the industrial noodle process step by step and ingredient by ingredient. So if you want to dive deep, check out the link in the show notes. But manufacturers really get creative with, and the consumer often finds a lot of joy in, the soup packet and toppings that come along with the noodles. This is where companies can tailor their noodles to their target market. There isn't necessarily a standard recipe for the soup base and toppings, but a lot of brands share a bit of a common formula. Most of the packages have some kind of dehydrated vegetables. Onion, leek, carrot, and radish are commonly found among other recipe-specific toppings. And the soup packet will usually contain a bouillon of whatever flavor is meant to be most prominent, be that fish, pork, beef, chicken, or whatever it may be, spices, salt, and in many cases, MSG. This is always a contentious topic here in the West because MSG was given a bad rap a while back in what is now widely considered to have been unsubstantiated claims fueled by skepticism of Asian food practices. The salt of MSG is a relatively new thing. I'll do an episode about it someday, but I do mention its origins in the soy sauce series from a few weeks ago. But just as table salt is a pure form of sodium chloride, MSG is a salt of glutamate or glutamic acid. Glutamate is an amino acid which is responsible for the famous umami flavor. Glutamate is prominent in and characteristic of such important foods as soy sauce, miso, parmesan cheese, bouillon, ranch dressing, and so many other products that we love. Again, we'll explore it in detail in a future episode, but for now remember that it's a prominent feature in many brands. But manufacturers have often removed it from brands made for sale in the West because of these fears. This leads into the question that many people ask. Is ramen a good solution to world hunger like Momofuku Ando hoped it would be? The answer is honestly complicated and in between so many issues that are often painted as somewhat black and white. Many have pointed out that it's not nutritious enough to live off of in a healthy way. They point to high sodium content, lack of all-encompassing nutritional value, and other factors. But my opinion is that this isn't the point of instant noodles in the eyes of Mr. Ando. Rather than trying to compare them to a balanced diet, instant noodles should be compared to the thing that Mr. Ando designed them to replace bread. Remember that these amazing blocks of fried noodles were invented in a time when food was scarce in order to give the Japanese people something they could enjoy more than was being provided for them. And I think that with the addition of the soup base and dehydrated vegetables, there is no doubt that cup noodles are more nutritious than bread by itself. Not to mention that like the noodles, bread isn't a meal on its own. Both provide nutritional value, but you need to eat them with other foods in order to maintain a healthy diet. Instant noodles need to be seen as a base upon which one can build a meal, and this is how many around the world treat them. In one very cheap package, you can have a tasty soup with good noodles in under two minutes, and then you can spend the rest of your time preparing vegetables, proteins, and other toppings to construct a proper meal. There are absolutely cases of people surviving almost entirely on instant noodles for long periods of time, 
and sadly, there are situations where this sometimes becomes necessary. And in these situations where cheap and bare-bones nutrition is all that's available, I think instant noodles are a great option because people actually enjoy eating them. Unlike bread, you can buy these noodles in huge quantities for a bulk discount and you can store them indefinitely. They even come in the container where they'll ultimately be cooked and eaten. And if you ever get to a point where they're the only thing available, they actually taste pretty good. There are a few things on the market that will give you full nutrition in a single package. One example is Soylent, a powdered drink from an American company that advertises full healthy nutrition in five servings a day. But at a daily cost of $9, this isn't a viable option for many who suffer from hunger. And although I genuinely believe that Soylent has its place, it doesn't exactly give you the warm, spicy, nostalgic embrace that noodles are well known for. So on the spectrums of cost, enjoyment, and practicality, I would say that instant noodles are better than standalone bread or Soylent, and that Momofuku Ando was right to be proud of his product, at least as part of the solution to world hunger. But truthfully, the problem of world hunger is not so black and white. Soylent, noodles, and bread will all be part of the solution among many other things, and I think Momofuku Ando was right to leave this earth with pride in his achievement. That said, the beauty of instant noodles are that they aren't just a subsistence food, but something that millions of people eat every day for pure enjoyment. So let's take a look at the top 10 consumers of instant noodles and what their packages, bowls, and cups might look like. According to the World Instant Noodle Association, in 2019 alone, 106,420,000,000-some-odd noodles were sold around the world. The biggest consumers were China and the totally separate country which was combined in these statistics, but regardless stands as a strong and independent state that don't need no daddy, Hong Kong. Together, they consumed 41 billion servings in 2019. And as in many places on this list, instant noodles in China are used both as a convenience product by individuals and as a staple at street stalls and restaurants. Chinese instant noodles, like Chinese cuisine in general, vary heavily by province in such a large country, but the most popular varieties seem to take inspiration from the southwestern province of Sichuan, which is renowned all over the world for its amazing food culture as well as its love of spice. In Hong Kong, Cantonese people have a long history of eating yi men, probably the closest thing in history to instant noodles. Those noodles are also fried before cooking and have their origins in the Qing dynasty. Second on the list is Indonesia at 13 billion servings per year. Indonesia produces many of their instant noodles themselves, importing few from Japan or other popular producers, although, as is the case in many places, an exception is made for spicy Korean noodles. A majority of the market is for a dry instant noodle which replicates the Indonesian dish mie goreng, which is similar to the Cantonese yi men. India is the third largest noodle consumer with 6.7 billion servings a year. India eats a wide variety of noodles with localized flavors like masala as well as imported Chinese, Japanese, and Korean brands. The biggest producer is Maggi, but they were banned for six months in 2015 for lying about the ingredients and because lead was detected in some packages. The fourth biggest market is Japan, who as we all know by now are the originators of instant noodles with the products made by Nissin. Popular flavors include chicken, shrimp, and curry, and in Osaka you can visit the Cup Noodle Museum where you can decorate and customize your own container of noodles. 
Vietnam is number 5 with 5.4 billion servings, and in addition to wheat noodles, instant rice noodles are popular and used to make instant versions of Vietnamese soups like pho. The United States comes in at 6th place at 4.6 billion servings, and Americans mostly eat Japanese brands, with some making varieties along the lines of American and Tex-Mex cuisines like roast beef, picante chicken, and chili lime. In 7th place at 3.9 billion is South Korea, which has an amazing tradition of soups and stews, many of which are given an instant version. Nongshin's Shin Ramen is my personal favorite instant noodle, and Korean instant noodles are among the most popular around the world. In 8th place we have the Philippines at 3.8 billion servings. Noodles are known as pansit in the Philippines, and they sit at the center of many great dishes many of which have instant varieties. I recently picked up an instant pansit palabok from Quick Chow and thought it was pretty good. Thailand sits in ninth place with a brand of instant noodles so popular that it is often used to gauge the Thai economy. Mama noodles dominate the market with their tom yum shrimp flavor being the most popular. And finally, in 10th place, we have the only South American mention on this list, Brazil. Nissin, the original brand, is popular in Brazil and a while back they noticed that Brazilians eat their noodles differently by breaking them up and often draining the cooking water off. They addressed this in an ad where the president of Nissin Brazil and his staff apologized for thinking that they made ramen best, only to discover that Brazilians do it better. His staff then bowed deeply in shame. This ad went viral and compounded already good sales of ramen in Brazil. And that is the story of ramen and how it got to where it is today. If you feel like I got anything wrong or you feel like I misrepresented anything, hit me up on Instagram or by the email in the show notes. Don't forget to check me out on Patreon where I'll be posting some cool ways to make a full balanced meal out of your instant noodles. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and that you join us next week as we explore another pantry staple. In the meantime, try some of the amazing varieties of instant noodles that are out there, start some conversations around food, and think about Mamofuku Ando and his dream to bring peace to the world through food. <laughs>